through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes, proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler. Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, the program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there are stories there that should not go untold. We want to honor our veterans for their service and sacrifice to preserve their stories so we never forget the price that's been paid for our freedom. And in the process, we come out way ahead because we're educated, we're entertained, and so often we are inspired by these stories from our greatest generation, 70 Twenty-five years ago this week, the world first experienced the horrifying power of nuclear weapons when first Hiroshima and then Nagasaki bore the brunt of atomic bombs dropped by B-29s from the 393rd Bomb Squadron flying off of Tinian. Very few veterans from that squadron remain with us today, but one of them is 95 and going strong in Visalia, California. His name is Norris Jernigan, and we have the privilege of spending the next hour with him. We'll hear about the extreme secrecy that surrounded the project, some of the twists and turns that proved fateful, and how he feels it should all be remembered 75 years later. But, as always, we like to start at the beginning. So, Norris, where were you born, and where'd you grow up? Born in Eugene, Oregon, when I was three months shy of three years old. My mother suddenly died, and, of course, my dad had to work, and he had my brother and I had to be taken care of, so he moved us to New Mexico to live with his parents so he could still work. So, left Oregon probably just three years old when I left there, yeah. So you never really knew your mother? You know, I can swear I can have glimpses of just certain things. And one of the things, of course, that sticks in my head, I, just it's a picture, you know, it's just embedded there. Somebody lifted me up to see her in the casket. I couldn't understand because I only had the one lid open, and I thought they had cut her legs off, you know, and I kept wanting to know where her legs were. I remember that and why, you know, unless it was such a shock to me or something. I don't know. It all happened very suddenly. My brother and I were with her when she collapsed. He, my dad was at work and um, saw her collapse and fall on the floor. And my brother took me. He was two years older than me. So he took me next door to see if he could get help. And the other picture I have is when this big long car put her in it and hauled her away. And that must have been an ambulance. So, But uh, she never gain consciousness after that. So I heard some of your first memories are memory of a, a tragedy in your family. Yeah, it's indelible, just printed there, and it just has stuck with me. A lot of people say it's impossible at that age that you would remember, but I disagree. Well, I believe you. So what about your childhood? You guys end up in California? Yes, uh, my dad remarried when I was seven years old, and he inherited his stepson. And it wasn't long until uh, that marriage was going to produce a child. And so my dad felt it was time to uh, take the blended family away from the other family there in New Mexico and move us to California. So we moved to California, and he bought a little 40-acre ranch south of Sacramento between Elk Grove and Galt out in the 
boondocks there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course, the, the Great Depression was on then, so that little ranch saw us through the Depression. Where'd you go to high school? Galt High School. Went through three years there. At the end of my junior year, I was approaching my 18th birthday and knew I'd have to register for the draft. I did not want to be drafted, so I wanted to enlist before I became 18, and of course, my dad would have to sign for me to do that. Originally, I wanted to join the Navy, but my dad was working at Mare Island Navy Yard at that time, and uh, he said, absolutely not. I could never feel right about signing for you to join the Navy. He said, I'm pulling too many body parts out of those ships that are coming in for repair that I would uh, ever feel good about letting you go in the Navy. But he said, your older brother's in the Army Air Corps. If you want to go that route, he said, I'll sign for you. So I said, sure. And at that point, I became very interested in flying, becoming a pilot. Mm-hmm. So I enlisted in the Army Air Corps cadet program. Before I forget, let's go back a couple years to December 7th, 1941. Yes. Because you're in high school at the time. I guess your brother was probably still in high school at the time, too. Yes, he was. <laughs> what do you remember about that day and how you found out and how it affected you? Yes. We had a small dairy as well, and uh, my dad wanted to expand it a little bit, so he had purchased four more cows. And the only time that the people could deliver it would have been on Sunday, December 7th. So, okay. We all waited around all morning for them to show up, and they didn't get there until shortly after lunchtime. And when they got out of the truck, the guy said, hey, did you hear about Pearl Harbor? The Japanese really struck it. They really bombed it. Well, that was the first we heard about it, because we didn't have the radio on all morning. So we did not know. And when he said Pearl Harbor, I thought, I wonder where Pearl Harbor is. I didn't even know where it was. But anyhow, that was um, kind of a somber effect on us uh, to think that, wow, looks like we're headed for war. And had you had any friends in school that were of Japanese ancestry? Oh, yes. Galt High School was made up of a large percentage of, high, of um, Japanese kids and uh, many of them are my friends. And then, of course, shortly after uh, Pearl Harbor Day, I think it was early in 1942, President Roosevelt decreed that the Japanese should be gathered up and put in, you don't want to use the word concentration camps, it wasn't supposed to be, but that's about what it amounted to, Yeah. and hauled off. Well, it just completely devastated our football team because a football team was um, just reduced to nothing because of such a large percentage of Japanese kids that were in our high school. And for you, as a, a teenager, to see all these kids that you've been around for years in school, and all of a sudden they're getting taken away and, and sent behind barbed wire, how did that strike you? Was it hard to wrap your brain around that? Well, it was, yes. And yet immediately uh, the nation had to overnight create a hatred for the Japanese people. So mixed emotions about it, you know. Some of them were my friends, and um, all of a sudden they're my enemies. So it was a very strange feeling, you know. So you leave high school, you join the Army Air Corps, and you're in the cadet program. Yes. And how did that progress? When did that course take a turn? <laughs> well, went into active duty and was sent to Shepherd Field, Texas, for the Army basic training because back then the Air Force was part of the Army. It was right. a division of the Army. Took my basic training there and then went on to the next step of the cadet program. Was sent to uh, Denver and enrolled in Denver University for a semester. And uh, that's where we had our first uh, flying lessons. After the semester was ended, came time for our school squadron to be sent to a classification center to decide whether we qualified for further pilot training or whether we would go to navigator school or bombardier school or somewhere else. 
the uh, pilot list and the bombardier list and the navigator list wasn't growing very fast, but the somewhere else list was. (laughs) 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 One day there was my name on the somewhere else, and so that was the end of my cadet training. They decided to send me to um, Amarillo, Texas to go to airplane mechanic school. There again, the wisdom of the military decided... (laughs) I was mechanically inclined and about as mechanically inclined as a black cat, I guess you'd say. (laughs) Anyhow, went down there and we laid around there waiting for the next class to start up. And after about four or five weeks, they called us together and um, said that they had decided to close that school. So they sent me to uh, Fairmont, Nebraska to become part of a B-29 group. Well, I'd never heard of a B-29, but... Anyhow, we went to Fairmont, Nebraska, worked in the motor pool for a little while because they sent me out as a truck driver. (laughs) There again, the wisdom of the Army. (laughs) I was there just about a month, maybe. And uh, as the number of people grew, they finally broke us into three different squadrons. I wound up in the 393rd Bomb Squadron. And um, one day, one of the guys that was in the administrative office, which we referred to as the orderly room, was going through the personnel records and noticed that I had in with the cadet program and I just had completed a semester at Denver University. Called me in and said, um, I see you were in the cadet program. What are you doing driving a truck? And I said, well, <laughs> you don't argue. <laughs> you do and go where you're told and you do what you're told to do. We had three answers. Yes, sir. No, sir. No excuse, sir. <laughs> Anyhow, he said, well, I tell you, there's an opening in the intelligence office here in the squadron if uh, you're interested is require some typing and I said well that's no problem I took a semester of high school typing so he said well if you're interested go over and talk to him so I did I went over to the intelligence office and um, they decided to give me a try and I was with the 393rd bomb squadron intelligence office for the rest of the time I was in the service and that would uh, really change your life Yes. All of a sudden, orders came through transferring the 393rd Bomb Squadron away from the 504th and sending us to Windover Field, Utah. Well, never heard of Windover Field because I'd never been there before. But uh, anyhow, we got to Windover, and um, what a cultural shock that was. Out there on the salt flats, away from everything, 120 miles west of Salt Lake City, the little town of Windover uh, was nothing. It was just a, a small casino and then a little a small state line hotel was all that was there, really, and few citizens. And there was a reason they wanted you all in the middle of nowhere. Exactly, and we found that out later. Well, about the second day we were there, I understand the officers were pulled into one of the theaters and briefed, and uh, the enlisted men in our squadron, we were told to assemble out in front of the orderly room. This lieutenant colonel hopped up on the back of a truck so he could see everybody and said, all right, men, gather around, I want to talk to you. So uh, he said, introduced himself, he says, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Paul Tibbetts, and I want you to know that you've been brought here for a purpose. You're going to become part of an organization that's going to be handling a new secret weapon that, if successful, should shorten the war by at least two years. Now, it's top secret, high security. You're not to talk to anybody. You're not to tell anybody where you're stationed. You're not to talk to anybody about what you're doing. You're not supposed to talk to each other. So um, I want you now to all go on a a two-week furlough. Go home, get rested up, come back, because we're going to go into an intense training program and uh, get ready to go overseas. Well, of course, we were so excited to find out we were going to be something special. But he stressed again, remember, top secret, security is high, so 
don't tell anybody anything. So we left to go on a two-week leave, but what we didn't know, he wasn't concerned about us getting rested up. It was a test to see if anybody could uh, keep their mouths shut. Some of the guys, when they got home, had telegrams waiting for them to uh, report back to the base immediately. And they found out when they got back to the base, they had just casually mentioned something to somebody about where they were stationed or going to be involved in something special or whatever, whatever they talked about. There was one story that was circulated, and we never could find out whether it was true or not, but it uh, certainly made an impression on us that they really meant business about this security. It seems that one of the guys that was uh, going on leave, while he was waiting to uh, get his bus, train, or airplane, wherever it was, uh, decided to go in the bar and have a drink while he was waiting. So he's sitting at this bar, and a Catholic priest came in and sat down beside him. And, of course, he struck up a conversation. I see my son, you're in the service. Yes. Uh, Where are you stationed? Oh, we're out at Windover. Windover? What in the world are you doing there? Well, we're not sure. It's some top-secret project we're going to be involved in. (laughs) Aha. Yeah. Okay. So he went on home, and he had a telegram waiting for him. When he got back to the base, he was met by the so-called Catholic priest who was in a business suit, was part of FBI security. We never knew who it was, and maybe it was nobody. Maybe it was just a story that was circulated to uh, catch our attention, which it certainly did, because we realized that they meant business. You didn't know who you were talking to when you left that base. Was it hard for you to keep that secret? Were there times you were tempted? Oh, heavens, yes. But fortunately, I somehow or other kept it. It's time for a break, but when we come back from Wendover, Utah, to the island of Tinian, where history was made 75 years ago this week, head over to hometownheroesradio.com or the Hometown Heroes Facebook page for photos and a short video with today's guest, Norris Jernigan, and Hometown Heroes. We'll be right back after this. Do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for far too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I've got to tell you, when it comes to your money, I I believe I found a better way with EECU. Take a look at myeecu.org and you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a nonprofit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. Close to 300,000 members now in 10 different California counties. Over 30,000 ATMs, free mobile banking. And what I really love is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. In 2013, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. More than 1,000 veterans now have gotten to see their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement EECU takes oh so seriously. Pick up the phone and become a member today. 1-800-538-3328. That's 800-538-3328. This is Hometown Heroes, celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty. Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and our visit with 95-year-old Norris Jernigan of Visalia, California, one of our last living links to the history that was made 75 years ago this week when the dropping of atomic bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki hastened the Japanese surrender. Norris was only 19 when a lieutenant colonel named Paul Tibbetts told Norris and other enlisted men in the 393rd Bomb Squadron that they were part of developing a secret weapon that could shorten the war by at least two years. 
when you heard that there in Wendover, Utah, from the man who eventually would be responsible for deploying that weapon, does your mind start to envision what kind of secret weapon that could be? Well, being at the uh, Army Air Corps, we assumed it was some kind of a bomb because that was the only weapon the Air Force was using, mm-hmm. was bombs. So we assumed that it was some new type of explosive that would be used. Little did we know, uh, maybe some of the guys had college physics, maybe a higher education, figured out that it might be that. I certainly didn't. I had no knowledge of uh, anything in that area Mm -hmm. of what it might be, but I just trusted that it was a new type bomb that we'd be using and uh, would shorten the war. And, of course, that was the goal of everybody, was Mm -hmm. to get that war over it because it was such a nasty, bloody war out there in the Pacific. And Europe, too, as far as that goes. And we understood after the fact, I guess it was after we even got back from overseas, the original plan was to put this group together and then split it in half, send half of it to Europe and half of it to the Pacific, and simultaneously drop two atomic bombs. One on Germany and one on Japan. With the war winding down in Europe, because it was so close to being over by the time we were ready to go overseas in spring of 1945, if that was the plan, it was abandoned because we all went over to the island of Tinian. I was assigned to the intelligence office as a clerk, intelligence clerk, which meant I typed reports and I helped put together folders made up of maps and aerial photographs and whatever else you could put in the folder to uh, help them complete their mission. Then when they would come back from their mission, they were always interviewed and uh, interrogated, and uh, then um, I would type up the interrogation report. So a good part of it at first was just typing. My assignment, once we were overseas, the Squadron Intelligence Office was combined with the uh, 509th Group Intelligence Office so that we were just one large office. And Lieutenant Jim Hinchie, who was part of the 393rd Squadron, was assigned the duty of uh, air-sea rescue officer, and his uh, portion of the briefings for crews that would be flying missions would to brief them on uh, the air-sea rescue. And he kind of adopted me as his assistant to uh, help him with that, and so I would spend a quite a bit of time working with him to put together information on where the submarines were operating and where the fleets were operating and where any uh, amphibian planes might be operating. Because we received a teletype every day. Uh, Many people don't know what a teletype is. (laughs) (laughs) Back then, we didn't have computers, so (laughs) it was a teletype that we received that gave the location of all of these things. I'm thinking about all the guys I've talked to over the years, and so many of them, they only know what they're experiencing. They know their mission, or if they're on the ground, they know you know this situation, this fight, this foxhole, this battle. If you're typing all these reports, you probably have more of a view of the big picture than most people in your squadron. Yes, that would be a good assessment of that, yes. Not the complete knowledge. Uh, we never referred to these bombs as atomic bombs until after the first one was dropped. To us, it was the gimmick or the gadget that we referred to. And I'm interested in some of the things that were happening there at Wendover because, again, we know now when the bomb was dropped and when the second bomb was dropped and everything that happened as a result. But at the time, you guys don't know anything, and this is all uncharted territory. So what was happening at Wendover, and what did you experience there? When we went into trading there, they started sending the crews to a different site to do their uh, 
practice bombing missions because they were using a heavier bomb than uh, what the uh, normal bomb would be. Somewhere down on the Southern California desert, when the crews would disappear for a few days, when they'd appear back at Wendover, where you guys been? Well, we were at Destination X or at Destination Y. That's all. You didn't ask anything further than that. When the 509th was made up, it only had one bomb squadron, and the 393rd was it. There were other squadrons in the 509th. Each had their function. You didn't talk to anybody in the other squadrons because... You never knew who you were talking to. And what about the development of this weapon? Was there any awareness at all of things being tested, of capabilities being learned? Not at my level. Colonel Tibbetts, of course, uh, he was, at the very beginning, he was given the task of putting together a military unit that could drop this special bomb. He knew about the bomb. He visited Los Alamos, and uh, he was in touch with uh, people higher up than him. So he knew about it, and maybe... uh, Colonel Payette, the uh, group intelligence officer, he may have known too, but very few people knew what it was. As far as the development, I had no idea where it was being developed, and neither did any of the rest of the guys either, as far as I know. No idea where this thing was being developed. We didn't even know that they were going to test that one on the New Mexico desert on July 16th of 1945. Didn't even know that they had tested one until after the two bombs were dropped. Then we found out, well, yeah, they had tested the plutonium bomb, but the the, uh, one bomb dropped on Hiroshima had never been tested. That was the test. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that was the test. So when you get the word, we're heading overseas, what did that mean for you? Excitement. We thought, well, finally we're going to get this thing done that we're supposed that we've been brought here to do. And so, yeah, we were all excited about getting over there. And I went over on board ship, and and I wasn't one of the few that got to fly over with the B-29s. And we had a troop carrier squadron as part of the 509th also that flew uh, C-54s, four-engine transport. So they transported a lot of the people. So, yeah, I was excited about getting, oh, let's get over there and get this thing done. When we first got there, the crews arrived, started flying some practice missions with uh, conventional bombs, that, uh, flying over to Marcus Island or somewhere, testing their accuracy for dropping the, any bomb. Then, in July, got word that they would start flying missions to Japan. So they started flying what we call the pumpkin bombs, which was the housing that, that was used for the plutonium bomb, really, with was full of TNT. The thing was a 10,000-pound bomb, did a lot of damage when it was dropped, but it still wasn't the gimmick. Well, after a couple of weeks of that type of mission, we began to wonder, well, maybe this is, maybe this is the thing, is it the big flop as far as I was concerned. It just, you know, it's a big bomb. It did a lot of damage, but, uh, you know, with only one bomb, well, the B-29, not ours, but the others were equipped to put multiple bombs in their bomb bays. You load a B-29 up full of conventional bombs. If you dropped all of those bombs on a target, it would do as much damage or more than what these one TNT bombs were doing. Well, we knew that once that first one was dropped, the damage that it did and the number of people that it killed, that surely the Japanese will surrender now. But they wouldn't. They wouldn't do it. And uh, when President Truman, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin met in Potsdam for the Potsdam Conference, they call it, they put together what was called the Potsdam Proclamation, uh, directed to the Japanese Empire, demanding that they surrender unconditionally. And uh, the Japanese received it, reviewed it, and on July 29th formally rejected it. Mm -hmm. They wanted to fight on. 
So that's at the point, I guess, that President Truman finally decided, all right, go ahead and use the atomic bombs. I've always been amazed by the fact that he didn't even know about the Manhattan Project or about these nuclear capabilities yeah. until Roosevelt died and he became president. Right? Exactly. When, when he was sworn in, he had no knowledge of the atomic bomb project. And Stinson called him aside and clued him in. And that was the first he heard about. And I think that's a tragedy, that a man stands in the wings that's going to step in as president if something happens to the president. was denied knowledge of what's going on. You know, what in the world thinking is that? I guess that underscores how secretive this whole thing was. Even okay. so, yeah. uh, there were people that knew about it. Of course, Roosevelt knew about it because he's the one that instigated the startup of uh, studying the use of uranium for that type of purpose. Others knew about it. Stimson knew about it. Uh, General Groves was heading a, headed up the uh, atomic bomb project. General Hap Arnold knew about it. A lot of people knew about it. But the vice president of the United States is the second most important person in our government. And he was denied the knowledge of it, which mm -hmm. just did not make sense. And I didn't have never been able to understand the thinking of not briefing him on what's going on. Because Roosevelt's health was getting so bad that they just expected him to drop dead any time, you know. Mm -hmm. They knew he was not going to be able to serve another four years. His health would not hold up that long. They knew that Harry Truman was going to become the president. And you don't clue the guy in? <laughs> My gosh. And it adds to the respect we have for how difficult that decision must have been for a guy who this is all new information to, and he's yes. so new to the job. Yes. What was August 6th like for you? Oh, it was exciting. Around August 1st, we realized that things were starting to happen because all of a sudden people started showing up. A lot of people in khaki uniforms with no military insignia, which meant they weren't military. Civilians showing up, a lot of high-ranking officers showing up, even a naval officer showing up. What in the world is the Navy doing here? <laughs> and so we knew that things were happening because all these secret meetings all of a sudden that only certain people were allowed to go in. We had a military police squadron as well in the group. You know, it just wouldn't be uh, anything to notice that on the chapel, one of the EMPs, one on either side of the door standing there with their weapons just guarding the door. That meant there was a secret meeting going on in there and a lot of the briefings were held in there. There were several briefings, and they were held at different places, but uh, the main ones, I think, used the little chapel, which was a, another Quonset hut converted into a chapel. So we knew that things were starting to happen. So we, we had a lot of excitement, all these high-ranking officers showing up. It was funny. One day, a group of us were just sitting around talking with some of these new people that had shown up, and I was sitting next to this person that was quite a bit older than me, but uh, we were just having a good conversation, and I just happened to turn around and look on, and on his collar was a star. <laughs> he was a general, General Farrell, and that was where I met General Farrell, just sitting, talking to him. He was just a regular guy, you know. And anyhow, we knew that things were starting to happen, and then um, when the uh, mission was scheduled, we knew that it was the uh, the big one. How did you know? That was the information we got in the intelligence office, that the, that the bomb is here. It's going to be delivered. August 6th was selected as the date, and uh, Colonel Tibbetts was going to fly the airplane. So he took over the crew of Captain Lewis, and Captain Lewis had to move over to 
to the co-pilot seat. That was uh, the privilege of the commanding officer. If he wanted to fly the airplane, the normal airplane commander would move over and become co-pilot. But anyhow, it was determined that Colonel Tibbetts was going to be the airplane commander on that mission. Then all these secret briefings we knew were briefing for this big mission that was going to happen. And uh, we were all sitting around the office. All the briefings had been completed, and uh, we knew that uh, they were going to be taking off that night, sometime after midnight of August 6th, and um, sitting around in the intelligence office waiting to go down to the flight line and see them off. And my buddy Ed Schlesinger and I, who have the same capacity jobs in the intelligence office, we were buddies as well. We were getting so heavy-eyed and about to go to sleep, our sergeant finally said, hey, you guys are just, you're going to go to sleep here. Why don't you go on back to the Quonset hut and lay down? As soon as we get ready to go down to the flight line, I'll come get you. Well, that was good news for us, and we went dashing off to the barracks to the Quonset hut. Flopped down on the bed. When I opened my eyes, it was the next morning. He didn't come get us, so we we missed the takeoff. Anyhow, they took pictures that night. It was a big affair. They had floodlights down there, and they were recording, talking to the crew members and, of course, Colonel Tibbetts. The crew got in the airplane. They cranked up the engines and just started moving to taxi out to the runway, and Colonel Tibbetts opened the side window and leaved out and waved. Well, when I saw that picture, I thought, I've got to have my picture taken the same way. So a few days later, after that mission, some of us from the intelligence office took the uh, office jeep and went down to the flight line until I had my picture taken, looking out the window of Enola Gay. (laughs) You will find that photo if you head over to the Hometown Heroes page on Facebook or at hometownheroesradio.com. Time for another break, but we're not done yet. When we come back, Norris Jernigan shares the story you may have heard and perhaps some elements of the atomic bomb story you may not have heard. Hometown Heroes will be right back after this. veterans from sea to shining sea you're listening to hometown heroes with paul leffler welcome back to hometown heroes and an amazing journey today with 95 year old norris jernigan of visalia california one of the last remaining veterans of the 393rd bomb squadron famous for the missions of enola gay and box car 75 years ago this week Norris did get a ride in a B-29 during World War II and again decades later, but his job was in the intelligence office on Tinian. He served under Paul Tibbetts, who piloted the Enola Gay on August 6, 1945, and I know you had a chance to interact with him over the years that followed at reunions. One time you even got a flyover by a B-2 bomber flown by his grandson. But the Paul Tibbetts you knew. What do you think we need to know about him the significance of his decision to fly the plane, the burden that he carried for the rest of his life. And have you ever run into perspectives or opinions that you would say maybe that's a little bit off from the man I knew and the situation I saw firsthand? Colonel Tibbetts was a real down-to-earth person. When we were together overseas, he didn't demand attention and saluting and all that. You know, he would just, we were all a team, as long as you did your job. If you didn't do your job, he could turn the switch the other way and become your commanding officer and uh, really know how to handle the situation. I didn't have a whole lot of personal contact with him because, after all, he was a colonel and I was a private. (laughs) It just doesn't mix back then. But my experience around him was that he was very fair, could be very strict, but if everybody did their job, there was no reason to be tough and strict on people. 
but it was going to take a team effort to make this thing work. I think he had decided from the very beginning when it came time to fly that first mission, he would fly it himself because they had no idea whether that airplane could leave the area in time to not be blown apart with the bomb even at 30,000 feet. I think he felt strongly that he wasn't going to ask somebody else to do something that uh, he wouldn't do himself. So he he elected to fly as airplane commander on that first mission. I can understand why. It was an awesome responsibility that the guy was given. He was called into General Ant's office around uh, September 1st, 1944. He had really distinguished himself over in Europe as a commander of a B-17 group flying bombing missions to Germany. And uh, when it came time to do the uh, test pilot work on the B-29, because the Air, Army Air Corps couldn't take delivery on them yet because there were so many bugs in the thing and so many of them crashing, it was gaining the title of a flying coffin, you know. It was dangerous. So they needed one of their own pilots rather than Boeing's test crews to come back and, and fly the thing and could recognize the weaknesses because he was an experienced pilot flying bombing missions. They brought him back from Europe to fly the bugs out of the B-29, which he did very successfully. When that was completed, that's what he was called to General Ant's office because he had distinguished himself through the whole thing, through his bombing missions of uh, Europe to flying the bugs out of the B-29. Nobody knew the B-29 better than Paul Tibbetts did because it became usable for the Army Air Corps to use because of him being able to fly the thing and detect where the weaknesses were to have him make the corrections so that the thing could finally come into production and uh, the government could be furnished B-29s to form these B-29 groups. So a lot of credit should go to him for that. Anyhow, he was told what the mission would be and that he was given the task of putting together a military unit that would uh, deliver this bomb to Japan. He was given some sites to use for this group, Wendover being one of them, and Wendover was selected because of the being so isolated out there on the edge of the salt flats that it was ideal for security. And he was also given the code name Silver Plate, which gave him all kinds of priorities to put this thing together because he had to override a lot of people that, were, that outranked him on... Um, getting personnel there, like selecting a bomb squadron, for instance. So, you know, he earned the right to be the airplane commander to fly that first mission. But I think the real decision was that he wouldn't ask somebody else to do it if he didn't know whether it was a suicide mission or not. Wow. Takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? Yeah. But he had it. He was a military man from the word go. He went to military school before he ever went into the Army Air Corps. It's an interesting story about how he got into it. He was going to college back in the 1930s. About 1936, he was nearing completion of his college. And his dad had decided, I guess the day he was born, that he was going to become a doctor. So he had to go to medical school. Well, while he was going to college, he got so interested in flying, he went out to the airport near the college and took some flying lessons. And he just loved it. And the more he got into it, the more he knew that that's what he wanted to do rather than become a doctor. Some of the other guys his age were experiencing the same thing. And so they heard about the Army Air Corps cadet program where you could join the uh, Army Air Corps and they would train you to become a pilot and you would become a commissioned officer and, and a full-fledged pilot. So he decided to do the same thing. So he went ahead and uh, applied and he was accepted. And then it came time to go home for Christmas break. And how do I explain this to Dad? <laughs> oh, boy. He knew his dad would hit the ceiling. So when he went home, 
His mother cornered him one day and she said, Son, I know there's something troubling you now. I want to know exactly what's going on with you. So he leveled with her and told her. So she said, Well, son, if that's where your heart is, go for it. So uh, he became so appreciative of her for uh, helping him to, to get into flying, which he wanted to do. That's why the airplane that he knew was going to become a famous airplane should be titled Enola Gay. It's after Enola Gay Tibbetts, his mother. So you miss the takeoff, but then they're gone. How do you hear about what happened and that this gadget has finally been unleashed? Well, we heard that the bomb had been dropped and it was successful. That's all we knew at that point until the crew got back and landed and then came back and went through the interrogation and then joined our group. It was a holiday all day on August 6th as we knew that mission was, was the thing, the big thing. So nobody did any work that day. We just were playing all day, softball and carnival-type things. And when the crew was released from the interrogation, Colonel Tibbetts came out to the area where we were having our picnic. It was right outside the encampment. And uh, got up on the platform, and he said, Well, successful mission. Sighted city, destroyed same. And then uh, when we could and the intelligence office could read the reports of the interrogation and the ex- explanation of what happened. You hear all the explanation about uh, the size of the fireball. That's exactly what that atomic explosion is. It's just a huge fireball. But anyhow, hearing the reports and seeing the reports, realized what a devastating thing that was. And we thought, that was it. We'll go home now. But the Japanese said, no, we think we're going to win this. Mm-hmm. We think we can still turn it around and win it. So, okay, the next bomb arrived, which is a different bomb than the first one. The first one was a uranium bomb, and the second one was a plutonium bomb. That mission was scheduled. All the briefings went through, the same as the first one, and come uh, August 9th, they took off about the same time in the morning to fly to Kokura, which was their initial target. The secondary target was Nagasaki. But when they got to Kokura, it was clouded over. They couldn't see the target, and they were told to bomb visually, not by radar. Because of the expense of this project, they couldn't afford to waste the bombs because they didn't have that many of them yet. So Kokura, they could not drop their bomb there. When they flew these missions, they rendezvoused with two other airplanes around Iwo Jima that would escort the bomb-carrying plane to its target. Same thing with Hiroshima. They did not continue with the bomb-carrying plane when the bomb-carrying plane entered the bomb run. They peeled off separately. One of the accompanying airplanes was carrying electronic equipment that they would drop by parachute to measure the uh, effects of the explosion. The other one was carrying uh, uh, photographic equipment to record it. Anyhow, when they tried to rendezvous over Iwo Jima, one of the planes showed up, but the other one, it wasn't there. They, they wasn't, you know, didn't make it. So they circled around and circled around and circled around for a long time, waiting for that other plane to show up. Nobody ever did find out exactly what happened. I think they finally determined that the other plane was at a wrong altitude. They were in the same area, but at different altitudes and never linked up. So they went on to Kokura, and because of it clouded over, they sailed several bomb runs over the target area, hoping that the clouds would break so they could visually bomb Kokura. It never did. So they elected to fly on. They better fly on because the fuel amount was getting down. So they went on to the secondary target of Nagasaki, dropped the bomb. And at that point, they knew they didn't have enough fuel to get back to Tinian. So uh, they elected to uh, Okinawa. Okinawa. They were coming in 
hoping to land. And they asked permission to land and were denied permission to land. So they decided to throw out their flares, which means they had an emergency aboard. Usually that they have wounded aboard is what they mean when they throw the flares out. Still didn't get any permission to land, so they landed anyhow. And they said once the wheels touched down on the runway, one of the engines started cutting out. That's how close it came to not making it. And so they were able to refuel and then take off and fly back to Tinian. But uh, not too many people were aware of that at the time. It was after the fact that we learned why it took them so long to get back to Tinian. (laughs) But after the second one was dropped, the Japanese reconsidered and on August 14th said, okay, we accept unconditional surrender. We give up. It's unfortunate that they didn't give up before we ever got over there. They were Really, there wasn't much left to bomb by the time we got over there. But the fact that one bomb could destroy a whole city was what finally made them decide. Because they were told in the the, uh, Potsdam Proclamation that their whole country would be destroyed one city after another. Okay, two of them are gone. Now what's the next one? Mm -hmm. The next one would have been Kokura. And the news of that Japanese surrender, when that hit your intelligence office on Tinian, what was that like? Well, it was funny. We were sitting around late at night, probably playing cards or whatever, but pretty close to midnight. And all of a sudden, we heard somebody shout outside, it's over. We thought, what? So we all, of course, rushed outside to see what it was all about. This guy said he had his radio on and he just had heard that the Japanese had surrendered. Well, that first go around was a false alarm. It wasn't so. So I've forgotten what date it was after August 9th that General LeMay put every bomb group's B-29s in the air to make a massive run on dropping bombs on Japan. They didn't know whether it was going to be atomic bombs or not in Japan, and I guess that was the final straw, because I've heard other groups say, no, it wasn't the atomic bombs that ended the war. It was our last bomb run that did it. Well, sure, it contributed, but I don't think it had contributed as much as the two atomic bombs did. Well, and you've had the better part of 75 years to to ponder that, to understand it, to learn more about the other things around you that were happening that you weren't privy to at the time. What's your perspective now? What should we understand about that situation, its significance, what might have happened if those bombs weren't dropped? How do you explain that? Because I'm sure you get asked that quite a bit. Oh, yes. If those two bombs had not been dropped on November 1st of that year, the invasion of Japan proper was to take place. They were massive troops on Okinawa and the Philippines to make that huge invasion. The Japanese knew it. They moved troops to that area to give us a reception when they arrived. Not only that, we understand they instructed all the Japanese civilians to fight to the death. Never give up. Fight to the death. It'd be to the glory of the emperor to do that. Fight with sticks, stones, pitchforks, whatever you can grasp. But do not surrender. Fight to the death. Okay, our invading forces would have had to fight all those Japanese forces that had been moved into that area. Plus they'd had to fight the Japanese civilians. So it would have been a bloody, bloody war. Probably the first phase of our invasion would have been suicide missions because they would have been wiped out. And they would just have to kept pouring troops in, pouring them and pouring them in to uh, make that a successful invasion. Because the Japanese just weren't ready to give up. I've had so many people through the years say, oh, thank God for what you guys did. My grandfather was on Okinawa with the invading force and training, getting ready for that invasion. Or 
my grandfather or my uncle or my dad was on Philippines with the invading force. What you guys did stopped that invasion. So they said, thank you for that or I wouldn't be here. You know, and they're right. So it would have been the bloodiest battle in the world's history as far as I'm concerned. Oh, I've heard all kinds of speculation about, oh, no, 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 it wouldn't have been that, you know. But just face the facts, for heaven's sakes. Well, I'm sure you've seen the intelligence estimates at the time where they said even just the initial invasion, it could have cost a million American lives and many times that in Japanese lives. That's right. Both sides. Yes. Yeah. So these two bombs claimed an extraordinary number of lives. Devastating. Yes. But your view is, in the process, they saved millions more lives. That's right. It's sad that so many people were wiped out with those two bombs. But let's look at Tokyo. You don't hear much criticism about the napalm bombs, which are just a horrible weapon of just literally burning people up with that napalm. You don't hear anything about that, you know. But mm. uh, the two atomic bombs were so inhumane, you know. No, should never have done it. We should have dropped one out in the ocean just to demonstrate to the Japanese the force of it. Well, what damage would it have done out there? Probably killed a bunch of fish, but, you know, it had to be done. That was the reason it was developed. That was the reason it was used. And the use of it stopped the war, as far as I'm concerned. I'm glad they were dropped. No question about it. I'm glad they've never been used again. I hope they never will be. We never learn from our wars. We think we do. We think, oh, this is the one that will end all wars. Well, that's what World War I was for. That's what World War II was for. Well, we've been in war ever since World War II in one place or another. It hasn't ended the wars. You know, as long as there's people on this earth, there's going to be wars in some form or another until the end of time when Christ comes back. He'll put a stop to the whole thing, and, and it'll be put set straight again. But as long as there's people, and people choose to hate, and there is so much hate in the world right now, that how can we ever get together and solve any problems? There's only one answer, and that's Christ. He's the answer, and if we would get the whole world to turn to Christ, that would solve all of our problems. When August 6th comes around on the calendar every year, and this year it's a big one, the 75th anniversary. Yes. What do you think about, what, what crosses your mind on that date each year? I'm still proud of the fact that I was part of something big. My job was not that big. I was a clerk in the intelligence office. I never touched either of those bombs. Never actually saw one. The one I saw was covered with canvas, so I didn't actually see the bomb. So, <laughs> You know, just knowing that I was part of something that big that at least stopped war for a little while. That war in the Pacific was so, so cruel and bloody. It was terrible, absolutely terrible for both sides. At that point in my life, I had a great strong hate for the Japanese. But once the war was over, I feel like it's time to set things aside, restore our respect for each other, and let's go on from there and try to make it a better world. And I think in a lot of ways that happened for a while. That's just a part of your life, a part of your life that I'm sure has influenced a whole lot of your life. But yeah. when you look back over 95 years, is there something that you'd say you're most proud of? Yes, my marriage. I met my wife about two weeks after I was discharged from the service, and we just hit it off from the very beginning. And by December of that year, we were married. When she passed away, we'd been married 68 years as of December 29th, 2014. And she passed away then in April 2015, very suddenly. Proud of those 68 years. Just a great life. And even though you're 
you're 95. You don't look 95. You don't sound 95 <laughs> to people listening on the radio. I don't know if you act 95. <laughs> Is there something well, that you're still looking forward to that, that's still on want, the list? If you want to see me act 95, walk into my bedroom before I get up in the morning and see me get out of bed, <laughs> <laughs> trying to get my joints back uh-huh. in positions. But what still motivates you or keeps you going? Just to keep going. You know, I, I just have to assume that I'm here, still here, because God has something for me to do. I don't know what it is. may never know. But I think uh, once it's accomplished, if it's ever completely accomplished, then God will say, okay, come on. Come on home. Well, selfishly, I'm thankful that hasn't happened yet, and we've had the opportunity to listen for the last hour. As soon as COVID-19 restrictions are lifted, they're going to be hearing Mr. Jernigan's voice again in the choir at Gateway Church in Visalia, California. And if you want to hear a little more of his story, you can pull up the extended podcast version of this episode at hometownheroesradio.com. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Paul Leffler reminding you again that freedom is not free. <laughs>